We are glad you're here this morning. I know some of you are here probably for the first time and you were invited by a, a, a friend or family member and I wanna let you know we're glad you're here. And I wanna be honest with you this morning as we begin, we're, we're not here uh, to celebrate the fact that, that winter is over and spring has started. We're not here to celebrate the fact that people will now be tan and that flowers are growing and grass needs to be mowed. We're, that's not why we're here. We're here this morning because we believe that Jesus Christ literally and physically rose from the dead. We believe it. We don't think it's a fairy tale. We believe Jesus Christ was physically and literally murdered, killed on Friday and was in the grave then that afternoon until Sunday morning. And on Sunday morning, he was physically resurrected from the grave. We believe that. And we embrace that and the implications of that. And I want to let you know that you have to do something with the resurrection. Everyone does. Because if the resurrection is true, then it's all true. If the, if the resurrection is not true, then none of it's true. If Christ literally was raised from the grave, then we have all the reason in the world to have hope and to live transformed lives. If it did not rise from the grave, then the scriptures itself says we are to be pitied among all people. So what it says here in Corinthians, we're to, we're to be pitied if he didn't raise from the dead. We should mail it in now, throw in the towel. This morning we're gonna look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're gonna look at the first 11 verses. And my hope for you is that we'll be done before noon. I'm gonna try. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're gonna look at the first 11 verses. Follow with me as I read. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He says, now I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of a, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. But it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. There's an amazing amount of consensus with, with commentators and theologians that the book of 1 Corinthians was written just 20 years after the death of Jesus Christ. So that would make it the oldest piece of literature we have in the New Testament. When Paul references what Christ had done for them, he, he's referring back to only two decades, and the memories and the stories would, would, would still be fresh in the minds of the listeners. What transpired on that Friday would, would have a ripple effect among the region and among those that, that heard of this. And hearing again that Christ died would have brought those images back to mind. And if you want to find the foundations of what Christianity is all about and what Christians really believe, if you want to find the core of what we understand the gospel to believe, you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This message was of first importance, Paul says. Easter is about Jesus. 
It's about sin. It's about substitution. It's about history and resurrection. It's about the astonishing, transforming grace. That's Easter. It's the gospel. And it's here in this passage this morning. And I couldn't think of anything more important to preach on Easter than the gospel. So first, I want you to see here is Easter is about Jesus. Paul writes, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And then he centers on the main thing. And he says, that's Christ. Everything in this paragraph has a set of clauses or phrases that explains Christ. They all point back to Christ. Easter is about Christ. The gospel is about Christ. Easter is a history-changing event. It's an announcement that the old way of life is, is no more. It's an announcement that we have a, a new king on the throne. It's an announcement that our common enemy has been defeated. And Easter is the core event in the calendar of the church because without the resurrection, we don't have any hope for this life. At Easter, we, we learn of the gospel, and in the gospel, we learn why Christianity is different than every other religion. Every other religion contains some sort of narrative about its founder, some explanation of how it came to be, and every other religion centers not on the founder per se, but in the directions that's given by them. And it lands on what you must do. And the core of those religions, like the, the five pillars of Islam or the eightfold path to enlightenment of Buddhism, the central part of those religions is, is always a set of directions on what you must do to gain eternity. They're heavy on, the, on work for you. But the core of Christianity, the very center, is not us. It's Christ. It's not do, it's done. It's not try, it's believe. It's, it's not worry, it's rest. And the gospel is not advice. Christianity is not advice about what you must do. It's news about what's done. In fact, one of the most impactful things of this whole passage is verses three and four. Look at those verses, friends. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried. And he was raised in the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And what's the response to that? What was the response of the Corinthians? It's, it's back actually in verse one. He says, I'll remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand. They heard the gospel preached and they respond. Now, verse one is not part of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is that you can do nothing. You can't do anything to save you. Nothing you have ever done or can do can bring you to God. It only happens through Jesus Christ. So verse one is the response to the gospel. And it was a response of the Corinthians as the gospel was preached to them from Paul. And it always centers on Jesus. Easter is about Jesus. Second, Easter is about sin and substitution. Easter is about sin and substitution. What was the first thing that, that is told to us about Jesus in the passage? It says, Christ died for our sins. We have sin and substitution. Jesus came to earth to deal with sin. This theme is repeated over and over through the scriptures. Someone has to deal with sin. Who's gonna deal with sin? We need a rescue from sin. And with all the Old Testament and all the way to the Gospels, is that these sinners, us, are in desperate need of salvation. And sin is our most fundamental human problem. And what is sin? I go to John Piper for a good definition for that. He says, what is sin? It's the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, 
The power of God not praised. The truth of God not sought. The wisdom of God not esteemed. The beauty of God not treasured. The goodness of God not savored. The faithfulness of God not trusted. The commandments of God not obeyed. The justice of God not respected. The wrath of God not feared. The grace of God not cherished. The presence of God not prized. The person of God not loved. That is sin. And we're all sinners. We all live for ourselves. We live selfishly and we've ruined the world. We've sinned and that is our most fundamental problem. We've, we're alienated from God. There's a barrier there and Jesus came to do something about that. And before anything else can happen, the, the barrier needs to be removed. Let me try to illustrate it for you and I, and I realize that any illustration will not be strong enough, but let's say you have a friend, actually a business partner, really. And you go back a long ways. Something has changed with them. First, you notice this friend uses your ideas as his own and then begins to accept credit for it. No thanks to you. And then it gets worse. You forget, your friend begins to break promises to you and then makes excuses and then just outright lies to you. And finally, you come to realize that on top of all that he's done, he begins stealing from the company and takes money for himself. He's robbing you. And it all comes to the surface and you, you confront him. And he acknowledges it, but he doesn't want to deal with it. He just says, can we still be friends? I want to do better. I want to live better. I promise I've changed, really. And what do you say? Well, you realize at that moment you're in a state of alienation because of all that he's done. It's not only legal, but it's personal. What you're going to do is respond to his plea and acknowledge that he wants to go through this and, and, and continue on, but you remind him of the full list of wrongs that he has happened and what has happened. He's, he's lied to you. He's put you down while elevating himself. He's, he's robbed you. There's a debt. There's a crime that's been committed. Bad things have happened and these things are going to be dealt with. There's an injustice that has to be paid. And it's personal and it's legal. And now I, I realize that this illustration is small in relation to God, but because God is infinitely larger than our problems here on earth. We have an infinite God. We have an infinite debt. We have an infinite crime. And there's an infinite barrier. And that's why Jesus didn't come to earth and say to us, just try better. What horrible news that would be. Just try better. Just, just say you're sorry. Just work on that. And things will get better. And it doesn't deal with the problem. It doesn't deal with the alienation. No, Jesus came to deal with our alienation to God because of our sin. And how does he deal with it? He deals with it substitution. And that word means so much to us as Christians. Think deeply about what that word means. In the Greek, there's a preposition used here, which means on behalf of, in place of, as a substitute. This is saying that Jesus Christ died on behalf of us he, he was our substitute. He died instead of us. He took on what we deserve. Jesus took our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We know sin. We sin all the time. Sin 
Sin says, your life for mine, your, your time, your energy, your patience, your work, you're all for me. We sin all the time, and Jesus comes into our world and says, I give my life for you. He came to be made sin so that we may become the righteousness of God. This is the gospel. Jesus, Jesus says, my, my life for yours. My life to serve you. My life to save you. My life to redeem you from the pit. My all given for you upon the cross. And sin at its core is selfish. You serve me. Your life for mine. Your all. You give to me so I can go farther and further. You sacrifice for me. You cover my flaws and my feelings. I'm not going to take the hit. I won't lay down for this. You sacrifice for me. That's, that's sin. But Jesus comes and he says, my life for yours. My blood for yours. He lays down his life for his people. And we as the church now can decide every moment, every day to remember the sacrifice and, and even in some ways emulate the substitution. We can practice substitution in small ways every day. And you know what I thought of this week and how we can practice substitution? I'm a parent. I know you, most of you know that. I have kids. There's many parents sitting here this morning. And you have this wonderful child that's been loaned to you for a set number of years. Did you hear what I said? They're loaned to you. So make sure you understand that. They belong to God. They've loaned to you. And you have plans. Not only big plans, but, but small plans. Most of us have plans for the day. And they're detailed. They're concise. They're, they make sense. We want to accomplish our plans for the day. And what do kids do? They ruin those plans. On a regular basis. I won't say ruin. They adjust them. They alter our desires. You know, in every moment, those, those, those plans are altered. We have a choice. We have an opportunity. And if our kids need something, they get sick or they just melt down. You name it, whatever it is. What do you do? You don't have two choices in that moment, really. You can sacrifice, laying aside your plans. You can die to yourself, your desires, and look to serve them. Or you just keep going on your plan. Which will it be? You can die and say, my life for you. It's death. It's the end of what you had planned. Or you can keep on going and live for yourself. And we have this choice, at least in my house, moment by moment. You can keep your schedule, keep your plans, and your children will learn that they don't matter. Or you can die to yourself and serve them. We have this choice to show love or not. Now listen, love, all love, all real love is a substitutional sacrifice. It's sacrificing something. And we see the true definition of love at Easter. We see it on the cross. We see it in the empty tomb. Christ dying for us. He shows us real love. And if you're here this morning and you're striving to understand what Christ did for us over 2,000 years ago on the cross, you, you have to understand the concept of substitution. 
Because if you don't, without it, you, you don't understand the gospel. Sin is substituting yourself for God, putting yourself where God belongs. Sin is saying, I am in charge of my life. Sin is saying, I'm, I'm calling the shots of my life. It's saying, I make my own destiny, and I'm ultimately the one who's in control. And in essence, you're, you're saying your own creator, and it's cosmic plagiarism. You're putting yourself in the place of God, and just so you know, you're underqualified for that job. We all are. Sin is substituting yourself for God. Salvation is God substituting himself for you. A glorious truth. It's God going to the cross to take your punishment. And so Easter is, is about sin. It's about substitution. It's about Jesus. It takes us to the third part here this morning. Easter is about history and resurrection. He says here in verse three, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. What's he talking about here? Well, he's talking about the resurrection. And why is the resurrection so important to the Christian faith? It's important because if Jesus doesn't rise again, he cannot secure our salvation. He cannot conquer death. And how do you know if Jesus' death on the cross actually paid for sins? How do you know if he actually defeated sin on the cross? How do you know the punishment was taken? How do you know if it's all paid so that if you believe in him, there's no more condemnation for you? How do you know? Well, and if, if someone was in some sort of debt during those days, whether they were in prison or maybe they were in slavery, the way they knew that a debt had been paid was that they were released. And the wages of sin is death, right? We know this. And when Jesus Christ was released from death, when he sprung from the chains of death, that is proof that it was paid. The debt is wiped clear. Have you ever been shopping before, maybe this weekend, and, and you're finishing up and you're leaving the store and someone stops you and says, did you pay for that? And what do they ask for? Can I see the receipt? Maybe it happens to me because I look like a suspect. I don't know. I'm the only one, huh? You know, this happens every time we are at Costco, right? And every time I think, I just spent two hours filling my cart with groceries for six people you want to check it out? Knock yourself out. And what do they want when you're walking to the door? They want the receipt. And, and they want to see at the bottom, he paid for it. It's paid for. It's proof. You know, for me, I, I save all the receipts. My wallet's really big, not because I have cash, because I have lots of receipts. And it reminds me of what's been purchased. Friends, this passage, these words here in 1 Corinthians 15, this is your receipt. This is your receipt. Payment has been made. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you need to understand this because when your conscience goes after you, accusing you, saying you've failed, you've royally screwed up, are you even a Christian? You turn to this passage and you see that it really has nothing to do with you and how good you are and your ability to save yourself, but it was Christ who was killed for your sins who was buried, 
who rose again on the third day and appeared to lots and lots of people to prove it. This is our receipt. This proves to us that it was paid in full. This stamps paid in full across history in such a way that nobody is ever going to miss it. Now you may, may be here this morning visiting because a friend or family has invited you and, and we're happy you're here. And you may be here as a, as a cynic, as a doubter, as a, a skeptic of Christianity. And I want you to know something. You're surrounded by lots of people all around you who were once skeptics. Just surrounded. Who once doubted this. And the Bible's full of skeptics. One thing is true with skeptics, you, you have that twinge inside of you wanting it to be true. You, you want it to be true. You're, you're longing for peace in your life. You're longing for hope for tomorrow, endurance for this life. You want this to be true, and so you come, you check things out, you're curious if this is true. And Christianity promises to answer all, to answer all your questions. It, it loves to show the answers. And right here in this passage, those that doubted if Jesus really rose from the dead are given proof. This is, this is what he says here. Jesus was seen by Cephas. He was seen by the 12. He was seen by 500 people at one time, most of whom are still alive. No, Richard Bachman, in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, points out that, that what he's saying here is, these are, these are footnotes. This is what Paul is saying. These are footnotes. You see, if you're writing a, a serious academic work today, especially a historical work, you have footnotes at the end of your writing. Why? Because your footnote basically says, here's how you can find out what I'm saying is true. Go look it up. So if you say, during this time, this time, this thing happened, you put a footnote at the bottom for the reader to check out the historical register at his local library to see where the evidence lies. You see, footnotes are, are, are ways for you as the reader to check the validity of the story. Is this really true? And in those days, if you're writing history, how do you footnote? You tell people about the witnesses who are alive and saw it. Go check them out. These are the footnotes. These are the sources. Paul is saying there's, there are hundreds of people who saw Jesus with their own eyes. Go talk to them. Most of them are still alive. Remember, as I said at the beginning, this is just 20 years later. And then he mentions the 12. The 12 that saw. You remember the 12? Those men who, who walked with Jesus, who knew the Messiah? And the resurrection just galvanized their, their belief in their Savior. They would never deny the fact that Jesus was alive. And, and no one breaks. They were questioned, and no one breaks after this. They, they crucify Peter upside down, and he does not deny Jesus that he's alive. Every, every one of these 12 dies a brutal, horrific death. Even John, who wrote the Gospel of John, the church tradition tells us that the leaders were so angry at his ministry that they tried to boil him alive, and he didn't die. And it freaked them out, so they sent him to Patmos. They wanted to get rid of him. All of these men never recant. Do you know who Charles Colson is? Once known as President Nixon's hatchet man. Colson gained notoriety at the height of the, the Watergate scandal. And here's what he writes about this. He, 
Through this, he was eventually convicted of a crime, went to prison. Here's what he writes. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they'd seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put to prison and put to death. And they would not have endured it if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? It's absolutely impossible. These 12 men saw Jesus. Forever changed. You see what all this means? Paul's essentially saying the resurrection is not just a symbol. It's not just a nice story. It's not a fable. It's not just a legend that has been passed on from one generation to the next. No, people saw him. There's evidence. You know, every honest lawyer in the land would love to have hundreds of witnesses for their case. They'd celebrate for this opportunity. Can you imagine the courtroom? I mean, just picture it. You know, the, the judge, is Jesus actually alive? Did he actually rise from the dead? Well, well, counselor, do you have any witnesses? Yeah, how much time do you have? Got about 400 or so. Let's just line them up and bring them in. One after another after another. There's plenty of evidence. You know, compare that to other religions. What does Joseph Smith, the head of the Mormon church, say? He says Jesus appeared to him. The forest, three apostles came down from heaven and he told them what he was to, to do. He was the head of the new religion, the new denomination. And he said, he laid hands on me. No one else saw it. And you know what he says next? You'll have to trust me. Muhammad says the same thing. Every prophet says the same. All religions say the same. He, he, only, have, he only appeared to me. Just, just trust me. And the Mormon church started in a corner. Buddhism started in a corner. Every other religion started in a corner, but not Christianity. Paul says as he stands before King Agrippa and Governor Festus in Acts 26, giving the defense of the gospel and telling of his conversion and then preaching to them. And Festus, annoyed at Paul, responds in verse 24. He says, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Every other religion was started in a corner. No witnesses, no proof. You just have to trust him. But this is not true of Christianity. It wasn't started in a corner. It was displayed for all to see. And if you're here and you're curious about Christianity, you have to consider the evidence. It's not just a fairy tale. If the resurrection is true, then the stuff that you most long for in your life, my friend, the kind of world that you really want for you and for your children is available. It's there through Christ. Believe in the gospel. And today is the day of salvation. This Easter can be like no other Easter you've ever experienced in your life. Because you've come to believe in what's true. Jesus actually rose from the dead. And if he really did, then you have to accept all that he said. 
But if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? If Jesus really didn't defeat death, what does it matter what he says? If Jesus really defeated death, it gives credence to every claim that he made in his life here on earth. But if Jesus did not defeat death, every claim wouldn't be true. In the words of another man, if Christ is risen, then nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, then nothing else matters. The resurrection changes everything. Fourth, Easter is about grace. Paul ends the passage, verse 8 there, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so we, you believed. And the end of this is the testimony of Paul. And Paul uses the word grace a bunch of times here. He wants the readers to, to center on this theme concerning his life. And Paul is not saying, hey, look, I'm, I'm able to do all of this on my own. No, it's through the grace of God. It's, it's his work. It's his strength. It's, it's not mine. It's grace. It's always grace. And we need to understand grace if we're to understand Easter, if we're to understand the gospel and what it means for us. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress in his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, tells a story of how he got converted. He had been reading the Bible and it just made him feel more and more guilty. But he said one day he just thought of something. He says, one day as I was passing through a field, suddenly I thought of a sentence, your righteousness is in heaven. And he explains how then, with the eyes of faith, putting together the things that he had read in the Bible. He says, with, with the eyes of faith, I saw Christ sitting at God's right hand, and suddenly, suddenly I realized, there's my righteousness. God could not say, where's your righteousness today? For it was always right in front of him. My good frame of heart could not make my righteousness better, nor a bad frame of heart make my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And now my chains fell off indeed. I felt delivered from slavery to guilt and fears. And I saw that all those weak character qualities in my heart were like the pennies a rich man carries in his pocket when his gold is safe in a trunk at home. Grace. Until grace has been revealed to your heart and you understand it, you haven't understood the gospel. Grace doesn't just accept you. No, it changes you. It changed Paul in drastic ways. Remember, Paul was a terrorist. He terrorized Christians in his life. His, his life mission was to destroy Christians and to destroy the church. He was even on his way to do horrific things when Jesus stepped into his life on the Damascus Road and changed his life forever. And that's why Paul says what he says about himself here in the passage. When, when untimely born, the, the least of apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Because he realizes what he was saved from. He, he hated Christianity. Paul was one of the most influential people in the history of the world. And he once hated the spread of the gospel. And yet grace changed him. And we read his words here in the book of 1 Corinthians. He lived his life at one time to destroy others, yet 
Grace changed him. And, and friends, listen, grace can change you too because grace is undeserved. And when you realize that it's undeserved, it humbles you, it, it brings you low. It's also unconditional. Because grace is undeserved, it brings you low. I'm no different than anyone else, but because it's unconditional, it lifts you up. I'm always accepted. I'm always loved. And it gives peace. It gives strength. And it can do this because it was costly. Even though it's free to us, it had an infinite cost to God. Remember on Friday, we gathered together to remember the infinite cost of grace. And Jesus endured the punishment for our sins. He endured separation from the Father. Let that sink in. He endured separation of the Father, something he, he never experienced ever. And he bore our sins upon himself. And he did all of this to give salvation for us, to give grace through this and through grace, we are filled with wonder. And Paul here ends this, this section filled with wonder at what he received from God. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. You know, if you were to read tomorrow morning that there was a cure for cancer, what would you do? You would spread the news as fast and as far as you could. Nothing could stop it. And everybody that hears about it gets excited and they're astounded and they're amazed and they want to tell everyone they possibly can. You know, think of the joy of knowing that your death sentence is now taken away. Aren't you going to tell everyone? Aren't you going to be amazed? Listen, friends, the, the gospel is way more than that. You know, we're not just talking about extending your life for a few more years. We're talking about eternity. We're talking about a love that never ends. We're talking about escape from death and peace that never fades. We're talking about everything that you've ever wanted. And how could you not be filled with joy? How could you not tell everyone you come in contact with? You know, on Friday, Jesus Christ did not defy death. He did not just deny death. He destroyed death. The bad guys lose, the good guys win. That's why Paul can say at the later part of this chapter, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is your victory? Friends, do you believe in the risen Christ? Is he your savior? And if it's true, you can face death with a hope of living forever with him. You can face anything if Christ is your savior. And I pray that your hearts may rest in this truth this Easter season. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege we've had to come and to worship together. That we can remember again that you're alive. And no other religion can say that. No other belief system can say that, that their leader is alive. He conquered death, but ours is. 
You are the truth. You are the way. And you are the life. Father, I pray for those that are here this morning that have, that have come on Easter. And I'm thankful they're here, God. And I, I pray for those that they don't believe in you. They're not trusting in you. And maybe they're curious. Maybe they're looking for answers. And God, I pray that you would use your word to bring them into belief. You would give their faith to trust. May today be the, the first day for them of, of a new life that's grounded in you. And Father, help us as as believers here this morning, to remember this truth, to glory in this truth, and to share this truth to all those we come in contact with. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.